Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Richard Lawson, and I'm here, just the two of us, with David Canfield. David, hello. Hi, Richard. Katie and Rebecca are off gallivanting God knows where. Or I, I mean, we know where. We're just not going to say. <laughs> but um, <laughs> you will be hearing from Katie later in this episode, because Katie, David, and our colleague Aaron Vanderhoof did a chat, a kind of a book club a segment about My Policeman, the Beth and Roberts novel that is soon to be a major motion picture starring um, an up-and-coming young actor named Harry Styles. You may uh, not have heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think that that is obviously germane because that movie is hotly anticipated. It's a gay period drama starring one of the most famous musicians in the world who is making some interesting forays into acting. So I guess going back to the source material is a good way to uh, prep us all for the phenomenon that will be my policeman uh, this fall. Um, but before we get to that, uh, we have a couple little things we want to bring to your attention. Well, one in, in particular, just published on the day we're recording on Tuesday, July 5th, we have a first look at The Woman King, which is a big historical epic action spectacular from Gina Prince-Bythewood, who people know from her earlier films, but most recently had The Old Guard with Charlie Theron, the Netflix film that was a huge action hit that... Um, did a lot of interesting things in terms of representation, um, really integrating that into the story of it. There was a gay kiss in a big action movie. That was a big deal. Um, and so now we have The Woman King, which is based on a real group of women from history uh, who in West Africa, they're called the Agoji. They're better known sometimes as Amazons. They were female warriors. Um, and there is now a film about it starring Violet Davis. And the first look is interesting for the photos alone, but also some some of the backstory. The thing that jumped out to me, David, oddly enough, was that somehow Maria Bello was involved in this. She had the idea and kind of pitched it to Viola Davis on stage. Did you know that anecdote? I, I only did moments before recording because, well, I mean, in addition to the piece, I went on Wikipedia uh, just to get a little bit of backstory on the movie. And I saw her name in like the very beginning of the production section. And I was like, is this the same Maria Bello? <laughs> is this a history of violence, Maria Bello? Um, but yeah, it's it was based on a story from her. And um, yeah, I'm, I wasn't aware of any prior collaborations with Gina Price-Bythewood or anything like that, but... Um, pretty interesting because there are a lot of big names attached to this one, obviously. Yeah, it's not only Viola Davis, but John Boyega's in it, Tuso Mbedu, who was so great on the Underground Railroad. Yeah. Uh, Lashana Lynch, I believe, is in it. Like, it's a really stacked cast. And, and it's one, I think we, we had talked about it earlier um, this year when we were looking ahead to the big kind of fall awards movies uh, with Joe Reed. And something I said then, and I, you know, after reading this, you know, feel even more strongly about is that this is the kind of movie, a movie starring Black women, that it's a historical epic that is not told through the lens of colonialism that a lot of people have been clamoring for for a long time. And I, I think that is very exciting. And I hope, you know, obviously that puts a lot of pressure on the movie. And that's something that Viola and um, Gina Prince-White would talk about in, in our first look piece. Um so I'm curious, David, what you think about how the movie is positioned. It's coming out in mid-September. That 
says to me maybe a Toronto opening night kind of thing. What do you think about that? That's exactly what I was thinking. I think TIFF seems like the likely place for this movie since it's a little bigger than Telluride. It's a little, it's more studio driven. Sony is releasing the movie. I'm just, I'm excited for it. I think that Gina Prince-Bythewood really deserves a movie of this scale and coming off of the old guard, it feels like right in her wheelhouse. A lot of her collaborators on this movie are people she's worked with before, including um, Terrence Blanchard's composing the score. He was nominated for Defy Bloods, and he worked with her on Love and Basketball. Um, She has the editor that she worked with on The Old Guard. So a lot of her prior collaborators all coming together for what feels like her biggest and most ambitious undertaking to date. And um, yeah, I think if, if it lands in the right way, it could be a huge contender. But we have seen the Academy drift slightly away from bigger studio movies in the past. So I think it'll need to pass a certain bar with critics and, and with the festival to, to have that momentum. Yeah. But if nothing else, it could be just a big early fall kind of action spectacular hit. You know, something that the, the writer of our first look, Crystal Brent Zook, says at the end is that, you know, uh, well, I'll just quote her. She says, uh, will it be difficult for the average American moviegoer to digest these images of ferociously powerful, dark-skinned female warriors? I kept thinking as I watched the early footage that black women have never been seen this way on screen before. To which Gina Prince-Bythewood pithily replies and succinctly replies, if you can digest Avatar, then you can digest this. And I think <laughs> I, I, I agree. Line. I think the kind of DNA of this movie, it's its size, it's, it's, it's war epic scenes, like that has been easily digested in many other forms in pretty much cinema's entire history. So hopefully this will just kind of slot right in there and and not uh, put any, you know, viewers at a distance because of who it's about. In fact, hopefully welcome more people in. I think it's, yeah, it's really exciting for that and and other reasons. So uh, if you're curious about the movie, go to VF.com, read the interview that uh, is on the site. So from the big screen to the small, I just Mm -hmm. came home from vacation. I had a nine-plus-hour flight from Rome to uh, New York yesterday. And on that, I spent uh, a good four hours-ish watching The Bear, which is this new... I think it's FX on Hulu, right? It's not just a Hulu show? It's what it would have been called FX on Hulu. Now I think it's just FX and Hulu. (laughs) Yeah, so it's a really interesting show. I I think one thing that had kept me away from it initially was that the title does not tell you anything about (laughs) what it is. No. Um, but it's a show about a chef. Um, it's from a creator named Christopher Storer, who has worked on Rami. Um, he produced Eighth Grade, the Bo Burnham movie. Uh, and this is kind of his first big piece of authorship that he, he's put out into the world. And um, yeah, it's about a, a really, really hot young chef who uh, has won lots of awards, has led the the most you know, renowned restaurant in the world, uh, whose brother has died. And he comes back to uh, Chicago to run the sort of greasy spoon joint that his brother ran, uh, but also kind of develop its identity and and, and add some gourmet seasonings uh, here and there. Um, And that chef is played by Jeremy Allen White, who people will know from the American Shameless. Um, I was pretty wrapped by it. Um, David, have you, what did you think of of the bear? I love the bear. Uh, I similarly was reluctant to get into it, partly just from, I think, May, April glut fatigue. I was not... (laughs) Immediately prepared to jump back into another intense new show with a lot of unknowns attached to it. But um, people have been talking about it. And I think rightly, it's just immediately it feels, it sounds like nothing else on TV. Um, The performances are all incredibly committed and really just realistic and naturalistic. 
Uh, the filmmaking's really interesting. It's a lot of it is just set in these incredibly tight corners in this kitchen, um, and it ratchets up the intensity pretty relentlessly. It is for a comedy series, maybe the most intense viewing experience of my life, um, especially because it is definitely bingeable to your point about watching on the plane, Richard. It's one show where you can definitely watch one after another. And um, I think the world deepens. It gets really sweet in an unexpected way because I think it introduces itself not in a bad way, but quite harshly um, and quite prickly. Yeah, I was I was really taken with it from beginning to end. Yeah, it's got this very interesting mix of that kind of high kitchen drama that you describe and 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 a, and a real well, I guess it's it kind of in relationship with its realism. It's kind of soft-spoken quietness, you know, there there are are lots of scenes even if they're just kind of interstitial establishing scenes that are that are sort of musicless and wordless, just kind of quietly observing people making food or organizing a kitchen. And I think part of that is exemplified in Iowa Debris, who yeah. plays this sort of up and she's you know a really ambitious young chef. She has a failed catering business in her past. Who uh, seeking out this renowned chef who's now inexplicably working in this tiny place in Chicago, she goes and gets a job there. Um, and she's the window through which we enter this very tightly knit social world of the restaurant, of the family surrounding the restaurant. Um, and I think her performance is really striking because yeah. it's so natural. I mean, there are times. With when she has you know a sort of quiet scene of dialogue where you're just like it it feels almost like a documentary, um, and I think that's a real testament to her talent and um, the way this show knows how to use the varying styles of its actors. Yeah, she's really quite unbelievable in this. I was familiar with her prior to this mostly as a as a writer, a comedian. Um, she took over for Jenny Slate on Big Mouth. That's probably the most um, known thing she's done publicly um, until this. Um, but yeah, she comes into this kitchen and has a kind of uh, idolization of Jeremy Allen White's character, Carmi. Um, and the two develop a very complicated um, and really compelling rapport over the eight episodes. I thought Jeremy Allen White was also really uh, extraordinary, particularly in the last couple episodes when... Uh, it kind of reaches his limit, and I think a lot of what he's been bottling inside uh, explodes. Uh, but the whole cast is great, and uh, they play off of each other really well. And, and one thing I really appreciated was it wasn't afraid to get a little sappy sometimes. And I think it's the rare show that really earned those sweeter notes um, because the performances felt so raw and realistic, and the content at times was so aggressive, <laughs> uh, that, that it, it guides you into the, that space in a very believable and, and earned way. Yeah. There, there are some aspects of the show, especially as the season goes on, where I, I did sort of start to question the, the world where I was like, I don't really get how this restaurant functions in the kind of broader <laughs> gastronomic scene of Chicago. Uh, I don't really know what the, their ambition for the place is. And that's kind of resolved at the end. I'm not going to spoil what I mean by that. But so there were moments when that realism, I think, in, in some ways was doing the show a disservice because I was expecting it to be hyper-realistic and then the more dramatic kind of, you know, where you could see it on the script moments kind of rang falsely where they might not otherwise had the show kind of been in that vein more consistently. But yeah, it was a real surprise to me. Again, it, I, it came out of nowhere for me. All of a sudden, I, I saw a few stray tweets saying how good it was. And um, I'm glad that I tuned in because it was it proved, well, both plenty entertaining for a, a long plane ride, but also just like one of the more creatively interesting half hour shows I've seen in a long yeah. time. I think we've been wondering where the half hour show stands these days. 
And and look, the bear isn't a sitcom. It's not a comedy per se. It's a kind of half hour drama, but it it's really interesting. And I think you know probably for next year's Emmys, if not enough people watch it, it, <laughs> it could it could have some presence there. But David, we're still dealing with this year's Emmys. We haven't really even started dealing with this year's Emmys. <laughs> where are we on that calendar? Because I know we've got a big a big date coming up. Yeah, so this is our last episode before nominations on Tuesday. Tomorrow you can check out all of our, our exhaustive predictions list on VanityFair.com um, that I collaborate on with a few other colleagues, including Katie. It's been a pretty wild, bloated season with just an incredible amount of shows. It's funny that stuff like The Bear, which I would argue as on the net felt more exciting. A lot of June TV than what we saw in May and April um, is not eligible. Mm -hmm. Um, But we are back to talking about the past season's shows. And I think there's going to be inevitably a lot of surprises just because there's so much contending uh, with all of the COVID delays finally catching up. In addition to all the new shows, combining to create a really overwhelming contenders list. If you had to, to pick a show that, that feels like it has the biggest narrative going into these nominations, what would you what show would you say that is? I would have to say, despite premiering a long time ago, uh, Squid Game is probably one that Netflix has put so much behind. The campaign, I believe, is this season one series changed the game and they do the game in the <laughs> Squid Game font. Uh, and they have plastered that all over Los Angeles and in trade ads um, and FYC ads. And it's it's rocking a drama series race that feels ripe for a big surprise. You know, Succession is the clear front runner. You have shows like Better Call Saul, Ozark, Stranger Things all coming back. But you have on the other side, in addition to stuff like Squid Game, shows like Severance and Yellow Jackets that look primed to um, make a splash. Um, and that's kind of the uneasy tension of this year's Emmys overall is a lot of returning stuff that we've been waiting for that got a lot of buzz, that got good reviews, coming up against a new wave of, of shows that um, might overtake them just by sheer the sheer fact of them being shiny and new. Yellow Jackets remains a fascinating story to me. Um, the show itself is is really good and, and really compelling, but also the showtime of it all, because, yeah. you know, it was just about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit less, a little bit more, that Homeland won the Best Drama Emmy, right? And mm-hmm. and that was a big, huge win for showtime. It, it kind of edged it that much closer to HBO in some sort of someone's imagination anyway. And then Showtime has kind of receded since, you know, um, it has stalwart hits like Billions. Uh, it had Ray Donovan, but those were kind of, you know, joked about, oh, my uncle watches that. I mean, it's a dad <laughs> show, you know. And then here comes Yellow Jackets as the, the network is, I think, kind of trying to rebrand itself and try to skew a little bit younger. So I'll be curious to see how far that one can go. I, I think maybe I'll, I'm curious if you agree with me, David. I think that show's best chance for an actual win would be Melanie Linsky because she's oh, she won the Critics' Choice right for that and she gave a great speech and people really like her. She's industry beloved um, and now finally getting a full spotlight on her. Um, so I, I don't know. That that seems to me Yellow Jacket's best chance. What do you think? Yeah, totally agree. Um, it's a really competitive category. Laura Linney's never won for Ozark. Um and anyone who loves that show uh, would probably argue that that's overdue. And a lot of Emmy voters love Ozark. Um, and Zendaya is definitely coming in strong after winning for the first season of Euphoria in 2020. But I think Melanie Linsky's right in there. And it, it really depends on the extent to which voters go for Yellow Jackets overall. I mean, by my math, when the show premiered, it felt like a ton of people just 
binged it or caught up with it with a Showtime free trial that didn't didn't have the service before. It was kind of the show that convinced people to at least try the the service. And I don't know how far that takes it on Emmy Day, but it, it's such a fluid streaming world now that it does seem like it's enough to at least get at some major nominations, including for Melanie Linsky. So you mentioned Euphoria, but you you wrote the predictions for the best drama or drama series nominations, uh, and you don't have Euphoria on that list. Do you think that that show is going to suffer from that sort of sophomore slump? Uh, the critics were, like myself, were a little bit eh on the season. Certainly the Twitter people were... I mean, maybe they're always highly critical in their sort of ecstatic way. Um, but I don't know. Euphoria seems like it's not quite the juggernaut it was uh, when it entered this race with season one. Yeah, it, it was only its only major nomination for season one was Zendaya. And I think the assumption, including on my part for going into the second, was that it was going to have a much bigger breakout in the Emmys drama races, um, particularly in drama series, just because it is incredibly popular. It's incredibly artsy in its filmmaking and it's very it looks and feels like nothing else on tv it's another example of that but i think the couple problems for euphoria is one the critical support to your point is not quite there as it is for most of the other shows i'm predicting and uh, i think this is one case where in a premiere pre-heat of emmy season probably hurts it because it is a returning show and I think in that category, it is going to be overshadowed by the likes of Better Call Saul and Ozark, which premiered later. It also feels like of shows that have been on the air for a few years that have not been nominated here yet, Yellowstone is most primed to crash the race. It just mm-hmm. seems to have reached a tipping point in the way that everything from Friday Night Lights to the Americans have in the past, where... It's a popular, fairly well-regarded show that suddenly the industry becomes hyper-aware of. And I think that this is going to be the year for that. But I think Euphoria is definitely in it. This is one category where it's just unclear the extent to which voters are going to embrace the new stuff versus lean on what is more familiar to them. Yeah, in the case of Ozark and Better Call Saul, those are final seasons, right? So in years past, the Emmys have rewarded something just at the very end. So those could be potential spoilers, too. Um, let's move over to, over to comedy quickly. I'm looking at your predictions for best or outstanding comedy series. And it, it's just such a funny indicator of, like, again, that the sort of half hour, like, where we are yeah. with all that. Because you have a show like Abbott Elementary, one of the big breakouts of this past spring, a really sweet... It's not a laugh track multicam sitcom, so it's not totally traditional, but it's new traditional. It's, you know, mockumentary style, like Parks and Rec, like The Office, um, 22 minute, very gentle look at a, at a public school in Philadelphia. And then you have Barry, which is this kind of auteurist <laughs> experiment lab, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, for, for Bill Hader and company. Uh, you have the kind of middle ground of Curb Your Enthusiasm, Hacks, an hour like Mrs. Maisel. It's such a vast array of things. Atlanta, which is very experimental as well. Do you think a show like Abbott Elementary, as quaint or, or sort of traditional as it is, does that have a chance of actually breaking through all the sort of auteur noise? Yeah, I think it can actually win. I think Quinta Brunson, perhaps ironically, given the, as you said, sweet and very unassuming nature of the show, is seen and has gotten the kind of campaign narrative of a real new auteur in the half hour space. Mm-hmm. She is the writer and star of this show. And Traditionally, with these kinds of breakout half hours from uh, multi-hyphenates, 
uh, voters tend to really respond to you know the likes of Fleabag, for which Phoebe Waller-Bridge won all of those categories. Uh, Atlanta, which is back in the race, Donald Glover had been in the race as a director and an actor. Um, and Barry, too. Bill Hader will almost surely be nominated for lead actor and directing for Barry. Abbott Elementary has really taken what shows like Schitt's Creek and Ted Lasso have um, started uh, to help define this category in, in the new TV era, which is sweet and kind and nice. And that is where voters have gravitated over the last few years. Um, and I think it fits perfectly in that trend. And it would make a perfect successor to Ted Lasso if that show were to fall in this category. I think Abbott is totally in it. Uh, it makes complete sense as a winner that is a show that like Ted Lasso last season, has been talked about a ton, was a kind of balm, uh, and excited a lot of people for the combination of what felt familiar about it and what felt fresh about it. I think the other fascinating thing about the Abbott Elementary narrative is that between your predictions for Outstanding Drama Series and Outstanding Comedy Series, it is the only network show. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that I don't know. I would have to imagine there are still plenty of stalwarts within the television academy who are like, network still counts, damn it. You know, like, <laughs> that, I, I don't know. I think I think that it, it, it's a throwback to an, an older time for the industry, while also, like you said about Schitt's Creek and Ted Lasso, attendant to a newer trend. Like, so it, it occupies both spaces really well. And I think as an industry story, that, that makes sense to me, for sure. It's also coming in at, at a time where the two biggest network Emmy hits of the last five years or so are ending. Blackish has been a four-time comedy series nominee. This is its last year of eligibility. This is Us was a four-time drama series nominee. This is its last year of eligibility. And so you do see it taking up the mantle uh, as those shows maybe have a quieter exit than uh, some campaigns were hoping for. Right, because at a certain point, the television networks are going to be like, why are we um, broadcasting this award show that <laughs> where none of our stuff is nominated? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, before we wrap this up, David, I'm curious, is there anyone um, among any of these potential nominees, whether it's a show or a performer or a writer, anybody who you're really hoping will get a nomination that maybe is on the bubble? I'm going to move into limited series with that question. Um, the Staircase premiered in a very, very crowded May corridor, but, and, and I do worry for some of its actors breaking through against shows that had a bit more time to breathe, like Dope Sick or The Dropout or The White Lotus. Um, but I thought The Staircase had one of the best ensembles of the year. Colin Firth will definitely be nominated, um, but Tony Collette's work, uh, especially in the last two episodes of the, the show, is really extraordinary and worth at least a nomination. Uh, and in supporting actress for two very different reasons. I think Juliette Binoche and Parker Posey are so, so good and just completely inhabit key characters to this very deconstructive and uh, strange telling of a true crime case. Um, and and Juliette Binoche particularly really is a big reason why the show works so well in its home stretch. Well, you can see VF's predictions for who will get an Emmy nomination next week uh, on our site now, along with really well-reasoned... <laughs> arguments for why those nominations will play out that way. Uh, and yeah, so in the meantime, uh, you have a couple days or a little under a week to catch up on everything. So that's not that hard. Well, welcome to uh, another installment of our semi-frequent series book club, Little Goldman book club, we can call it. We are heading up to another fall of movies, so we want to look at some of the books that are inspiring some of the fall's big movies. So, uh, hello, David. Thanks for joining me for this. Thanks for having me. 
And then joining us, a uh, a podcast celebrity within the world of Vanity Fair, as far as I'm concerned, uh, but a not in, not frequent Little Goldman guest, and we can change that. Uh, hello, Aaron Vanderhoof. So great to be here, Katie. So great to talk about regular British people and not the <laughs> royalty. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully you've listened, listened to Erin on our Dynasty podcast. You might have heard her voice in ads on this podcast telling you to listen to Dynasty. Um, but Erin, I think as I told you when I asked you to come join us to talk about my policeman, I thought you're the perfect person to do this because you love British people and books and hairstyles. Yeah, that's like the, the triple crown, like three of my my f- biggest interests. Um, I was joking that I had just, uh, the PBS show Endeavor just came back, and it is all about a policeman in the 60s who's even more miserable than this policeman, you, you, if that's possible. Yeah, that's a tough charge. Erin, you read Beth and Robert's book, My Policeman, um, a while ago, even though it wasn't even published in the U.S. basically until this movie adaptation came about. So do you want to do the honors of setting up what this book is? Well, yeah. So uh, Beth and Roberts has said that it is, I think the I've heard it described as Brokeback Mountain uh, in Brighton, but I feel like that doesn't actually <laughs> mm. quite get it right. It's more like atonement, mm. it, but it's more like gay atonement. But so Beth and Roberts has said that she was really inspired by E.M. Forrester, the novelist, had this 40-year relationship with a police officer. And when he died, The police officer's wife was there holding his hand, and she was really moved by that scene and decided to do a lot of research. And so we have a a love triangle, but really it's two people pining for their policeman. And over the course of a couple of years, they have a relationship that develops together, but also separately carrying on relationships. And then we'll have to figure out how we want to deal with spoilers. But, you know, (laughs) then, of course, there is rupture. Uh, yeah, it's a, about two men trying to have a relationship in 1950s England. Uh, so things aren't going to go great. You can probably guess from the start. Yeah. But and told told through 50-50, partially from the perspective of Marion, who is a school teacher, and she's very prim and lonely. And then Patrick, who is a museum curator and has had, he seems to be an aristocrat of some sort. It's not exactly clear. He's not very wealthy, but he's like pretty wealthy. And Tom, who is a a childhood friend of Marion's, he has joined the police force and just runs into Patrick on the street. And that kind of sets this whole, the whole tale into motion. Um, yeah, so our colleague Rebecca Ford, who um, is not with us, but wrote a preview of the movie uh, for Vanity Fair a little while ago, and you can kind of get the details on the movie version in which Harry Styles will play Tom, the policeman everyone's pining after. Uh, Emma Corrin, famous as Princess Diana on the Crown, will play Marion. And then David Dawson will play Patrick, who um, is, in fact, a little bit older than those stars. David, what uh, what is your history with this book at all or, um, you know, experience with this type of novel in historical period? Well, plenty. Yeah, I think the McEwen, the atonement comparison is a great one. There's a lot of Ian McEwen, it feels like, in here. And definitely on Chesil Beach. Definitely thought about on Chesil Beach. <laughs> yeah. uh, in terms of my history with this book, I encountered it when the U.S. release happened, not realizing it had already been out. I just thought, wow, a 50s gay novel that I missed. What is wrong with me? <laughs> uh, and then, <laughs> You missed the uh, Google alert. Yeah, and so uh, I was quickly brought up to speed. Um, thank you, Harry Styles, for bringing this book to the United States. I believe you can single-handedly thank you. And I I had pretty conflicted feelings about the book. Uh, I think it's really beautifully written. I think it falls into some traps that we can talk about. And um, the perspectives 
chosen for the book are really interesting, but you do have at the center of this, uh, the character of Tom played by Harry Styles is um, very hard to read engage because he really has no point of view or voice in this story. And so you have these two people very intensely pining after him. And at times you may wonder why, <laughs> why, <laughs> why Tom? Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, and then to your point, Katie, about Rebecca's piece and, and the upcoming film, uh, from what I can glean, it's going to be centering his perspective a lot more. And, you know, he's going to be our conduit through these two relationships and this fairly tragic um, collision of, of passions and repression that leads to the ending. So, One of the things that I think is was so interesting about the reading experience that I tried to recapture as rereading it just recently is the very first third of the book really does, it doesn't feel, I, I always get this feeling of like, these people might be able to come up with a like, new way of living within the constrictors of their society, but still like searching out something they want. Like I think the bond between Patrick and Marion is something that could be so strong and real. And it is very painful to kind of watch that kind of fall away as the book goes on, especially because I think you seeing it from Marion's perspective, she's so enamored of this like cultured man who takes them to the opera. And he Patrick is a little less he's a little less fond of Marion. <laughs> yes. Pretty harsh really. And I mean on some level you can't blame him because there's times when you're in her head and you are seeing how she is both naive and, like, wanting to understand the world, but also kind of, like, willfully blind to it. And I, again, thought about On Chesil Beach and Atonement, like, the, the Saoirse Ronan character who, like, doesn't get how the world works. Um, and Emma Corrin is playing her, not Saoirse Ronan. But I wondered about Marion as a movie character, if you're going to watch her kind of, like, turning a blind eye to this relationship between Tom and Patrick and then other people in her life and not just, like, want to bash her over the head. Can a movie get around that? At times in the book, I think you're most closely associated with her point of view. We should back back up a little bit just to explain that, you know, the, the, we're introduced to her kind of memoiristic recountings of what happened between her, Patrick, and Tom, and, you know, her courtship with Tom and Patrick coming into it. Um, we've all, I think, alluded to a big thing that happens uh, between Marion and Patrick, um, which Amazon will probably kill us if we spoil, <laughs> so we won't. And people who haven't read yeah, the book Yeah, go read the book and spoil um, Go read the book. But um, after that, we, you know, the, the action is broken up by diary entries from Patrick. So it's a slightly different form through which we get his voice. And and that, I found that really interesting. I wasn't sure it worked consistently, but it, it does give you different, even with, within the different perspectives, different notions of them, different connections with their voices. So I think for the movie, you know, I think she has perhaps the more straightforward voice in some ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it is one that is, in turn, perhaps tougher to capture in a screen character, whereas I feel like Patrick is much more immediate on the page and much more, there's a more, there's more of a liveness to it, just given the format of the, of the diary mm -hmm. entries. Well, and I think in Marion's case, so I think one of the things that, you know, and of, of course it's a memoir, she's in 1999 looking back on 1957, 
But I think that it becomes really clear that she falls in love. So Tom is her best friend's older brother, and she kind of becomes enamored with him, and then he leaves for three years. So she's kind of got this fantasy of Tom that she has built up kind of in her head, whereas with Patrick, you get a kind of a lot better sense of Tom as like a sort of ingenue, like quippy, you know, like Patrick falls in love with Tom Moore as a person. And so I think that it's just harder to, to you know, show three years of unrequited pining. Yeah. In, in, you know, you can't do like a, a montage. <laughs> Although I do think you get nice details about her life as a teacher in those sections. And I don't know what a movie can do to capture that. I think she has a friendship with a fellow teacher, which I think is important to the story. But I don't know how much it would linger on that. But I feel like that's where you kind of get more of a sense of her as a person as opposed to being like, why are you obsessed with this guy who's not going to give you time of day? <laughs> yeah. Well, but then he does. He he marries her. And I think that that's the, to me, I remember the first time I read this book thinking, being kind of like, eh, on the fence, like maybe I'll put it down. But then when Tom turns to her and says, I think we should get married, that's a moment where you're just like, oh, no, this is crazy. <laughs> this is no. not going to go well. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about the Tom of it all, because I have talked to both of you about how this dude, like, kind of sucks. And I want to be (laughs) more generous with the character, but I think that on some level it's deliberate. Like, you want to have these two people kind of uh, idealizing him in these various ways. Um, And I kind of spent the whole book wondering if we would get his point of view on it, and then it becomes clear that you won't, and he's just not going to give you anything. And I think especially in the 1999 scenes, he's behaving in a way that is, I think is especially abominable. How does how does a movie overcome this and make us get why they're after him other than it just being Harry Styles, which kind of does a lot of the work? Well, I think to a certain extent, there's going to be a bit of imagination, right? I mean, that's what you can do with a film and with another telling, uh, another version of the story. And it's Frankly, what I would hope for, based on what is on the page, I don't know that, you know, it's very much by design that you don't know Tom at all and that you are only getting these very intense projections um, onto him. But that does not work nearly as easily or effectively on screen. And so you do need to fill in those gaps. And um, it does make the casting of Harry Styles, there. there is a meta element of having this actor who is, or is, star, I should say, who is fawned over by millions and millions of people whom we don't fully know. And that is the same to be said of Tom, uh, at least on the book. And the movie, I think, has a chance both for Harry Styles as an actor. This is, along with Don't Worry Darling, going to be a major, you know, cinematic introduction for him. And uh, within the story to to show us what it's all about. <laughs> and um, I am curious to see where they take it. It's an interesting team working on this movie. I don't have very strong feelings on him as an actor one way or another, just because I don't have that much um, you know, exposure. But I do think in order to tell that part of the story right, you have to maybe taking a risk isn't the right way of putting it, but you have to be able to put your stamp on it in a way that the book very deliberately does not. I kind of came to see him as like a perfect epitome of, you know, Meghan Markle's hated stiff upper lip. The It's has got to come back to Meghan Markle. <laughs> yeah. The, well, the sense that he has no ability or permission to express his own feelings, 
you know, I think it, it speaks a lot to how important it is to have language in order to be kind to each other. You know, that communication is so – so I imagine – so I kind of seeing him – through more of like a cultural stereotype or attitude. I'm going to be very curious to see, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of, of other, I, it's just hard for me to imagine Harry, Harry Styles just the kind of most sort of like effusive, like exuberant person kind of like buttoning it up like that. But I think that it'll, I think that that's why it, you know, it's, it's both a good acting exercise for him to see if he can do it. And I think that you even see it in the, in the trailer, he's while they're swimming, he's kind of smiling at her. It's like the the very he he kind of captures that the emotionality that you wish you could have seen from Tom, but no, like must have been there. Yeah, and you imagine you'll see more of it in the scenes with Patrick um, because that's like, even in like you get Patrick's point of view about like them falling in love with each other, and it's still just like Tom, say something. Like, what are you? Why? Why are you going for this? Um, but I think in the piece that Rebecca wrote, they talked about having an intimacy coordinator come in for the sex scenes, which are you know more intimate between the two of them. So I think that like the the camera might be able to reveal more of that relationship than the book does. And I think that's probably necessary for getting that story to work. Mm. It's also interesting the way the movie plays with time to the, sorry, the way the book plays with time to that point um, and how the movie will be faithful to that. Uh, it opens in the present ish day and we encounter these three characters together uh, under uh, very sad circumstances. And then we sort of wind back and um, explore how we got there. Rupert Everett, as an aside note, is playing Patrick as an as an older man, and I'm very very excited that for that. That definitely suggests it's going to be different than in the book because yes. that is not a uh, active part in the book. Also, that they chose a law a former Law and Order DA to play adult Harry Styles was just so crazy to me. <laughs> just good for them. I'm glad that they saw it. Like I'm just going to be thinking back to like the four episodes where he's like breaking up an animal smuggling ring, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> in the context of those scenes in the book, though, I'm not sure how that's going to work. But yes, to your point, Katie, they'll have to make some adjustments, I would think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so anyway, um, the way the story, those two halves of the story inform each other as you go along. In, in the movie, because Tom is presumably going to be more central, how that part of it would work is also interesting to me because... He's just so, he's so unknowable that you really are, when you're placed in those more recent scenes, present day scenes, he's, he's so enigmatic. I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, I think the, the moment you really do kind of come to know him, it's like, it's about 20 years in the future. And in this memoir that Marion is addressing to Patrick, there's a moment where they have a fight and she asks Tom, like, what do you do all day while I'm at work? And he says, I meet strangers. We either get a drink or we have sex. Do not make me say this again. And I think that there is a sense of like, uh, you can, as much as he in a certain way has really impacted uh, Marion and Patrick's lives really negatively, in a sense, you can kind of see that his his life has been really negatively impacted by it yeah. too. And I think that that's the, yeah, that, that was a really just, chilling kind of like oh i had to i had to write that down so i could remember it cuz it was hmm. a really really strong moment yeah and then it's gone and that's kind of the only thing you get from him in that present day at all which is also deliberate mm-hmm. yeah the book generally is so beautifully and compassionately um 
focused on the experience of being in the closet and of that, the repression that comes with that. And obviously, as with many a novel of this time period and and um, interest, also that extends to Marion. But um, yeah, it's one of the, I think the strengths of the book is uh, you, you, you're never like the characters able to escape that feeling. You're never able to, and, and, and that's why you kind of want that sort of burst and you want to hear from Tom and you want... The, so much of that tension, like you were saying with um, Patrick and um, and Marion, to to not necessarily fall away, but to to inform something more positive, let's say. And you know, I think it's to the book's great credit that it really is unwavering in that regard. But it also does at times feel frustrating in the way that there is this sense of inevitability and this sense of tragedy that overtakes it a little bit. I think. Yeah, I think from Patrick's diary entries, you get these really interesting glimpses into how closeted gay life worked at that point, like how he yeah. goes to the gay bar and the name he uses and the places that you can go to hook up with somebody. And I think that texture is really interesting. It's like yeah. a historical um, lesson for a lot of us. I feel like I can picture Emma Corrin and Harry Styles in this film, just having seen the performances. But David Dawson is kind of unknown to me, who's playing Patrick. But he's been in a lot of British TV. So I'm wondering, Aaron, if you've seen this guy and you know what he might bring <laughs> to the table. Um, oh, man, I'm trying to think. I feel like he is the, specifically the, like, museum like curator, the guy who's like looming, I think is a really. I feel like he's been that before. I'm not. Oh, I should have. I should have thought about this. I know I was thinking about it a little earlier. But yeah, I feel like he is one of those. There, I feel like there are a lot of character actors in British TV that like kind of show up to be the the mysterious, like dark haired, like patrician looking, like Oxford graduate, and he definitely pulls off that vibe very well. And that's that. I'm seeing a photo of him on Peaky Blinders with some really intense-looking glasses, looking <laughs> sneering. So <laughs> definitely, he seems like he's got that sinister capability if he needs it. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I feel like in America we just don't we don't keep keep our sinister-looking actors as uh, as busy as they do in <laughs> England. But um, well, no, and I think that that's the other thing. And I think maybe one of the things that I liked about the Patrick sections, and I I hope will really more inform the way that the the movie treats this is just that like there is this such an intense kind of class dynamic that's going on there Mm. and like because I think that you're at this point in time where the sort of youthful indiscretions at Oxford and Cambridge you know I think Alan Hollinghurst is the master of of capturing this in literature are just so so pervasive and he's kind of coming into contact with a group of people who are just much more haven't had the sort of like economic privilege to be free like that, but they still have their own, you know, you can clearly Tom has, has had other, has had his own experiences, even if he hasn't been sort of as like, he's not as worldly or as like cultured as Patrick is. And I think that like, yeah, that, that sense of, of what upper class life was like that I think it just like so, has been so sumptuously portrayed in so much TV, I think will be definitely a, a bigger part of it because of just I think that that feels so important to like understanding Patrick as a character. Like I'm, I they go to the opera, and I really hope that I hope that that is a a scene that remains more or less intact. <laughs> that I think that's a really great point, and and one of the the parts of this book that I really love, and that um, I think does sort of flip what you would expect of this kind of narrative is with those Patrick sections. Um, there is a kind of yearning for that domesticity, and there's a more natural connection. There's something safer. 
about it in, in the writing of it. Whereas with Marion, she is very intensely attracted to him and, and in these recollections, very aware of what is not being reciprocated. And it's it's kind of the inverse of how these stories normally go and how gay men in stories of closeted gay men particularly are often portrayed. Whereas here, it, there, there's a real... Um, Mutuality between Patrick and Tom that is not shared with the uh, with him and Marion, which of course for gay characters completely makes sense, but it still often goes the way of um, it, it can be a kind of trope of, of the best friend between the gay man and the woman, the straight woman who marry. Um, and here it doesn't it doesn't succumb to that. It really does challenge Marion as a character to see where things were not right um, throughout, and I really appreciated that. Although I also wondered how Patrick kind of deliberately seducing Tom would play out on screen. Like, there's, you know, he's got all these resources. He, like, cooks up this, like, fake drawing project to try to get him to come into the office. And you kind of see it from his point of view. And he's trying to be very careful. And he has to be because this is a a cop. And you could be arrested for, you know, gross indecency at this point. Um, But I I wonder if that would clang a little bit um, if if it's not handled right on screen. Yep. (laughs) I can only nod (laughs) and agree. (laughs) I mean, if anything, I think it's it's very funny that Tom feels like such a cipher when he definitely gets the best lines in the entire <laughs> book, like, by far. But, you know, he quips the first time he ever goes to Tom's apartment, but you never thought you'd have a policeman in your bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's a good Tom line. I forgot about <laughs> so that. So good. So, yeah, I think I think thinking back on this, the plot of it, I was like, oh, man, how, like, why would Harry, it's weird to me that Harry Styles would agree to be a guy who just kind of, like, is so, like, inert and, like, an asshole, but... But remembering that, ah, he's, like, beloved and he gets some great singers, I think, made that a little bit more clear. Yeah, and going back to what we were saying about his exuberance, like, I feel like you're going to spend the whole movie waiting for it to come out. And then in those moments when it pops, it will feel as, like, stunning to you as a viewer as it does to the people around him. I can I can see that working. We should say the movie is being directed by Michael Grandage, who is a really acclaimed theater director uh, and directed uh, Red with Eddie Redman and Alfred Molina and uh, has done Hamlet and all kinds of other things. Um, and I don't I think this is his first movie. Um, mm-hmm. It is. Which is going to be really interesting. But I, I, I think attention to actors is a really important requirement for directing a movie like this. And that seems like something he could really excel at. Yeah, the the screenwriter is also interesting. He wrote uh, his name is Ron Nyswaner, mm-hmm. uh, and he wrote for Homeland and Ray Donovan. <laughs> uh, in addition to um, writing a lot of screenplays um, going back to the '90s, so you know, it's it's a there's a lot of unknown quantities to this project, um, which is, is really exciting when you have such a meticulously structured and written book. It opens the field in a way because you have to do something innovative with it to make it work. And when you have people where you don't really know what kind of direction they take it in, that that really, I don't know, it, it makes, makes for exciting possibilities for sure. Um, last year, a friend of the brand, Michelle Ruiz, did talk to Bethan Roberts, the author, and she said that she like was very happy about the experience of working with them and that of the movie, she said she is quietly confident. Hmm. (laughs) I love that. We should say Ron Nicewana wrote Philadelphia in terms of... uh, Yes. We've been on our Pride Month flashbacks, David, so uh, going right back back to the Oscars. (laughs) Yeah. As someone who's never been to Brighton, but I've seen enough movies set around it, I feel like that's such a great visual space, like the pier and the big hotel and everything. Like, I don't think I fully get Brighton as like a place like is it like New Jersey is it different but I'm excited to see a movie set there again it's like aesthetically 
like the old timey parts of the Jersey Shore, but like culture wise, like a little bit more like both kind of like fashionable and like fashionable working class. Ooh, I think okay. at least in the 60s, like that's where like a huge center of sort of like outside of London where you would got like mod culture of like young people. And I think you kind of even see it in the. That's another great thing that I really hope translates is the attention paid to Marion's dresses. Oh, <laughs> you get my God. These incredible, yeah. these incredible, you know, like, what is it, like, tangerine, like, yeah. A-line dresses with crazy and her prints. cardigans and her kitten heels. Yeah. yeah, you really get good clothes in this. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think just it's, like, it is a really an oft return to especially, like, 50s, 60s Brighton because it is, like, that kind of combination of, like, a drab setting with the, like, spectacular nature is, like, a contrast that I think people really like to watch. I know I do. <laughs> yeah, there's the movie um, Brighton Rock based on the Graham Greene novel that uh, no one saw. Like, enter Rise Bros in it and Sam Riley. Does this ring a bell for you, David? Uh, yeah, it vaguely. I, I didn't see it, but it does ring a bell. <laughs> yeah, it definitely, like, used the pier and all that stuff very well. So um, mm-hmm. I have been intrigued ever since. Um, any final thoughts on, um, on My Policeman? I would recommend people read it. It's a quick read. And I think kind of like a, you know, it's sad, but, like, emotional. There's something cathartic about reading it, I think. Well, we are talking about the, the fashion. The costumes in the movie will be by Annie Simons, who, among other films, did one of my favorite films from this year, Benediction, which we talked about uh, mm, a little bit yeah. in Richard's Best of the Year so far list. Uh, another story of tragic gay longing from <laughs> 20th century London. Wow. So there you go. 20th century UK, I should say. No, that book, the book is uh, gut punch. It's really rare that you see a novel that takes on something sort of like so complicated in structure and makes it feel really simple and then kind of makes it so that you like put it down in the end. It like really sticks the landing in a way that I think is, that's why I'm so excited about seeing the movie because I have no idea how, like clearly (laughs) they are going to change some things in the end, but the book, the book really does it. It handles it really well. Well, we should give the details. So it's an Amazon release. It's going to be in theaters in the U.S. and the U.K. on October 21st. And then it'll be streaming on Amazon on November 4th. So you've got, you know, only four months to wait <laughs> until you can watch it. Uh, thanks for bearing with us talking about the book so early. But it's plenty of time to catch up and read. Well, that does it for this week's episode. Uh, as ever, you can follow us at Little Gold Men on Twitter. Uh, you can message us on subtext at 917-809-7096 or go to joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen. Send us any questions, comments about Emmys, about The Woman King, about anything we've talked about or you want us to talk about. And you can find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Rylaws. And David, where can people find you? David Canfield 97 Uh, This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And the award for the best description of what we'll be doing an hour before our Emmys party goes to Richard Lawson. High kitchen drama. 